The message of Saved by Grace, Not by Works is woven like the gold in the bride's dress in Psalm 45. The, the gold of that message is woven in throughout all the story. A seemingly passing word, but Paul just really wants the church to remember that as Christians, you're not staying saved by your hard work. It's everything's an inheritance. Welcome to the Red Tree Pod, a project aimed at seeing how grace clarifies our otherwise confusing lives and attempts at reading the scriptures. I'm your host, Davis Johnson, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Chris Wachter and Laura Rhinus, as every other week we walk through a few passages in light of the gospel before looking at a, but what about, part of the Bible that seems to fly in the face of grace, but maybe doesn't. We're glad to have you with us. Well, the holidays have come to another close, but the Red Tree Pod is still on. Here we are for another episode. Chris, Laura, it's good to see you, friends. How are things? How are you post-holiday? Well, we're doing well at the Walker home. Um, we usually after post-holidays and during holidays, we were kind of in a, um, I don't know if this is true for you guys, but we're in kind of a board game haze because we're kind of... Well, half our family's into board games and half is not. <clears throat> so it's uh, – which creates some interesting uh, dynamics sometimes of how we spend our time. But <clears throat> my son and my oldest daughter and I play quite a bit and um, we uh, had a good time with that. But um, yeah, I, I think if there's maybe a thing to share with that, it's been kind of a cool thing in our family of watching the other two, which is my wife and youngest daughter. So shout out to them. But um sacrificing for the rest of us, you know, and uh, I think even, I think even last year around this time, which my son's birthday is around this time of year too. Um, I think my youngest daughter gave like a coupon or something saying, this is good for one time of me playing a board game with you. Like that was yes. her gift. And I thought that's a great gift for your older brother. That's going to really, really bless his socks off. And, and, and it did, but, um, but yeah, kind of a cool thing to watch our fam, some of our family, uh, sacrifice, you know, uh, there's, some some grace and gospel in that for sure. So we've been in, been enjoying that. But yeah, but how about how about you guys? How you been doing past couple of weeks? Yeah, we are um, knee deep in wrestling season here uh, with my middle, uh, which has been really interesting. This is his, the first year he's wrestled um, as a freshman in high school, and because of the way the weight classes work, I am not a uh, wrestling expert by any, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but basically if the varsity team does not have someone at a certain weight class, they'll usually bring someone up from JV. And so this year that has been my son. So I've been watching my newly christened wrestling son go up against people who have probably been wrestling like most of their lives. Um, and it's stressful for me as his mother, <laughs> For sure, um, <laughs> because it you know the 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 matches haven't been lasting that long. Um, he's putting up a good little fight, but you know there's just strength and skill that just hasn't been built yet. Um, but what I've really loved is just kind of watching his dedication. Like he kind of gets smushed and then gets back up and then is in there for his next match an hour later and. He hasn't had like a bad attitude about it where I'm like in the back, like, why is he on varsity? And he's like, yeah, I'm on varsity. Like he just has such a chill attitude about it, which is, you know, something cool. I can definitely learn from. 
Um, but yeah, it's kind of been really cool to kind of see him grow in this sport for sure. That's awesome. Well, speaking of a non-chill attitude, uh, my <laughs> my daughter had the opposite of your son's chill attitude in the presence <laughs> of Santa. So Santa made a showing at one of our family Christmases, actually more than once, a couple of different places we were at. And my two-year-old is terrified of him. And <laughs> it's super adorable. She just clings to whoever's holding her or she'll run and find somebody mm-hmm. to cling to, mm-hmm. get far away from Santa, even when he gives her gifts. She'll like approach with fear and trepidation and then grab the gift and run back. <laughs> and it's, uh, I know that especially with a lot of the things we talk about on this podcast, it's like, I'm, I'm not going to yeah. try to take that one away from her. I think Santa is a scary being, yeah. you know, who's always <laughs> measuring you and keeping track of what you've done well and not so well. Mm-hmm. And so my daughter's uh, a, a visual picture of, I think, all of us when it comes to the law of Santa. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely a highlight of Christmas for the Johnsons is watching the the vividness of Mount Sinai Santa Claus. So, (laughs) Yeah, we had um, some Advent write-ups at our church and one of our lay pastors was just kind of commenting on Santa theology a bit and he was writing about... um, Contrary to popular opinion, I'm I'm okay with Santa watching me when I sleep. It's when I'm awake that I'm kind of like <laughs> that's what I'm kind of like nervous about. It freaks me out even more. That that was kind of a, a funny spin. Um, but yeah, however you slice it, it's uh, it's a little bit unnerving. Yeah, but and I'm not anti Santa. I think uh, you know there are different tribes that, especially mm-hmm. you know different Christian camps, are like, oh, I'm not going to give that away. Or one of my friends is like, I just don't want Santa getting the credit. You know, I want <laughs> my kids to know it was me who got him the gifts. Nice. I think there is something awesome about just the the mystery and the allure of Santa. Mm-hmm. But like I said, I'm still okay with my daughter being very, very afraid, Yeah, (laughs) at least for now. I don't know. I still use Santa with my teenagers to get them to go to bed early the night before. I'm like, Santa can't come. And they're like, well, whatever. And I was like, no, literally I'm, nothing's going to be there in the morning. If you don't go to bed, (laughs) we'd like to sleep now, please. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Well, today we're going to be discussing first Samuel one, at least the 20 first 20 verses in that chapter. And then our Psalm, uh, this episode is going to be Psalm 45 before we step back through Ephesians 1, just a few verses there. And then our but what about section today is the 10 lepers in Luke 17. We are marching our way mm. through the teens of Luke in our but what abouts because that it's just a dicey section of the Gospels as we've been experiencing. So excited to discuss that one with you guys. But before we do, let's chat about 1 Samuel 1. So if you're less familiar with where we're at in the Old Testament, at this point. This is during the time of Judges. And I know we've talked now about Judges and Ruth. And again, this is a time marked where Israel does not have a king. And so the the over, over and over we hear again them saying, Israel had no king and everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. So we're in this kind of in-between when Israel is a, a band of tribes and they're waiting to become a monarchy. And that story is really going to be marked by these two kings, Saul and David. But Samuel is going to be the prophet that is born, uh, who's going to be writing a lot of the story and and kind of uh, a major player in deciding these kings or, or helping us understand their role in Israel's story. And what's fascinating is just like Ruth 1 is as we're about to see this big historical moment in, in the story of Israel, 
God wants us to zoom in and pay attention to just a very insignificant player, or so it seems. Just like in the story of Ruth, we zoomed in on a woman in pain, namely Naomi. In the story of Samuel, we are zooming in on another woman in pain, and her name is Hannah. She is married to a guy named Elkanah, and he actually has more than one wife, which the Bible never condones, but does describe because it did happen in history. And it always happened at the detriment of everybody involved. <laughs> and so Hannah's going to give birth to Samuel. But before she does, she's going to be overlooked by her husband and misunderstood by another priest in the room and then made fun of by the other wife uh, in the polygamous marriage. And so that's kind of going to be the story of 1 Samuel 1, at least in the first 20 verses. And let's talk about it because this this really is a passage that I think we could have even done as a but what about because it often mm. does get uh, mistranslated. In fact, I, I was reading up on one uh, heading into today's podcast that, that one person just said, this dramatically demonstrates how the life of Hannah is this example, is this picture of how ordinary faithfulness mm. in, in the midst of everyday stuff uh, can change history forever. And I was just left, you know, just, I was just, even upon reading that, I was one first very confused. I mean, it's just left so vague and I, and I'm under, and I'm left asking myself like, okay, well, what, is that my job even is just to change history dramatically by being more ordinary. And if I'm, yeah, if I'm not changing history is the solution to double down on my ordinariness. I don't know that that's the goal of what God is writing the scriptures for. And so I wanted to uh, first begin with just, yeah, where you, where you guys want to go with 1 Samuel 1 in these these first 20 verses? Well, I, I could start maybe with a couple words on verse 2 um, and the idea of having two wives. And actually, I should start. So I preached this sort of recently at my church, and I, I was looking for some ancient um, art, and there, there's not a lot on Elkanah and his two wives, um, which maybe is not super surprising, but there was an illustrated Bible, an ancient illustrated Bible, that I think it was back to like the 10 hundreds or something that ha- has a drawing of this. And it's, it's Elkanah with these two cloaks in his hand, and he's like holding them out in front of them, in front of him, which is, uh, you know, apparently his, his two wives jackets or, or robes or something. He looks like, I don't know which one of these is, is whose, but, um, here, you know, it's sort of this like picture of like this frantic, I shouldn't have married two women, uh, you know, kind of guy. Like, yeah, you probably shouldn't have, you know, now you're, now you're, um, in this kind of place of not knowing whose clothes are whose. And, uh, it's, it's hilarious, hilarious. Probably, which not is meant probably to be funny, the least but, of your problems. Um, probably <laughs> the least of your problems is, yeah. Um, just thought that was, um, but I, again, just to underscore that idea, the Bible's not condoning this, but it's making theology out of it. And as we, you know, I've even said in this podcast before, even recently, as recently as last episode about Ruth and and the two daughters-in-law of Orpah and how they represent two covenants. Uh, this is um, something we're really careful about on this podcast is just showing how the Bible is a story of twos and dualities. And um, even thinking of Galatians 4, how Abraham also had two wives or at least a wife and a concubine and how two covenants are represented in those two sons that were born of those two women, one of the old and one of the new, one of law and one of grace. I think you have that here as well, especially when you see Penina, 
who is uh, really making life really hard for Hannah. She's an accuser. She's laughing at Hannah's barrenness. Uh, she's, I think, um, bolstering herself by saying, look what I've done. It's, it's, it's actually exactly what Abraham did with the concubine, with Hagar, and saying, look, God, what I've done for you. I've made a son, so now you can work. Now you can bring a blessing to the world. I think uh, Penina has this kind of flair about her as well, in contrast to Hannah, but she has this um, accusational, you know, um, lawful kind of dimension, old covenant dimension to her, which is what the law does. It exposes us. It it amplifies the strength of the, of the self. It says, I am fertile on my own. I have this kind of natural ability on my own, and it thinks highly of the self. And it's it's almost impossible in that regard then to have, you know, a humility with um, kind of a heightened law-keeping spirituality to the self. And I think we're supposed to see that here. In contrast with Hannah, who has this brokenness, and I think the idea is that God sees her in this space. She is hurting. And um, ultimately, and we can talk about this too, but ultimately her barrenness is solved in a very, almost a miraculous way. I think a way of love, a way of intimacy um, with her husband, but ultimately God working through um the nothing, uh, the, the space of nothingness, the space of uh, uh, just like it was with um, Sarah, Abraham's wife, and how God had to overcome the obstacles of old age and, and barrenness and nothingness to bring about a child. And that is the line that Jesus would come through. And I think so, even though that's not here genealogically as much, Samuel being in, in the line genealogically of Jesus, like physically, I think spiritually, we're meant to see that Hannah serves as that spiritual genealogical line of Christ, that Jesus would come through that way, through that new covenant kind of embodying that grace embodying way of God doing everything and needing to meet us at the end of our rope, not at the, not the top of the mountain, like Penina's at the top of her mountain, just feeling good about herself, but at the valley of, I can't do this, help me um, in my despair. And that's the line of the New Testament that gets favored here, that Samuel uh, comes through and serves as this key, I think this key heroic um, but grace-centered figure here as he is positioned against Saul, I think in a way, uh, but also as one who anoints David, and then David becomes that line genealogically of Christ too, and in all kinds of other cool ways. But so... I'll stop there, but I think that verse two, just the way the book starts, he had two wives, I think is just ripe for us uh, in terms of seeing that story of the two covenants there and and how they differ and how they both tell the story of Christ, but one in a way of contrast and one in a way of resemblance. Yeah, for sure. I love that, Chris. And I, I, think, I think you say this often. I feel like that's where I heard this, but just kind of twisting the diamond of scripture a little mm -hmm. bit. Um, I think also kind of going in with this two covenant um, theme that we're getting, I think Hannah plays a really important part of this. Um, and just kind of like we saw with Ruth, where we kind of saw Ruth as a Christ type, um, where she's cling clinging to this, you know, bitter and broken woman, just like Christ clings to us, his bitter and broken sinner families. Um, I think we can say the same thing about Hannah. Um, in her desperation to bring forth life, because really when she's she's praying these things, it's really interesting because it she's praying for a son, but it's for a son that she's going to give immediately back to God. Um, it's almost as if she's praying just to have the capacity to bring forth life. Um, and I think we see a lot of Christ type in the way she's going about this, even you know, when she's talking about how she's not drinking like uh, Elijah thinks she is, but she's in fact pouring herself out 
Um, you know, we see a lot of Christ thirsting, even on the cross, he says, I thirst. Um, and, and that's so we can drink deeply of the, the life-giving water that literally pours out of his side on the cross. Um, and just kind of how he takes that on. So then we can, um, benefit and drink deeply of that. Um, and then, you know, she, she does, she brings forth the son and then immediately gives him, um, to God. And I just, I just think it's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of Hannah in this Christ-like way, kind of mm-hmm. incurring this suffering and this despair. And out of that comes the son and comes life. Um, and I think it's a, a pretty cool picture of just how Christ um, wanted and desired to bring forth us into life out of the death that we kind of found ourselves in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing that uh, – there's a couple angles that really stood out to me. But uh, for starters, I I really like how Elkanah – you can kind of do a both and with him in the sense of connecting him to Christ in that he, on the one hand, very positively does extend his love towards Hannah and even just – I think in any polygamous marriage, one is going to get favorited and (laughs) you can't avoid that. This episode sponsored by polygamy. Um, Yikes. Canceled. Uh, We just got canceled. (laughs) Uh, But Elkanah does have favor towards Hannah and wants her to know how much he loves her without her, you know, doing anything. It it doesn't matter if she has kids or not. His love for her is not going to wane. And so that's positive. And I think there is is an on-ramp to connecting that to the way Jesus loves you and sees you despite you and anything you do for him. Um, I want to flip to the other side of the coin, though, and and say, well, you know, Elkanah is not the best example, though, in the midst of this. And I was even, I think, experientially just trying to put myself in his shoes. And if I was to see my wife downcast and sad, his line here, I don't think, has much purchase in her life. Uh, It says in verse 8, her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? And again, the context here is she's being poked and prodded by this rival wife who's mocking her, and Hannah just regularly is experiencing the pain of barrenness. And here comes the husband saying, why why are you so sad? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? And here's the line, don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? And again, experientially, I just put myself here as like, okay, if I were to say something like this to my wife (laughs) in the midst of pain, I don't know that I would be even allowed to sleep on the couch. I think it's out of the house. You know, it's like, what do you, it's just such a dense husband line, right? And so Hmm. I, I think whenever you see a husband speaking in scripture, there's a chance to go, how is this like Christ? How is it different? And, and here we do have a, a semblance of difference because I, I do think underneath it, we could say, does Jesus mean more to us than our greatest expectation that anything in this world can provide? I, I think that's one of the main points of scripture, but God takes a whole long time to show us why mm-hmm. Jesus as a husband is worth more to us than the thing that we long for most. And, and to dial that up a little bit more, you never have the New Testament coming forth with Jesus saying these words to you. He never, you know, points a finger at you in the midst of life's missed expectations saying, well, aren't I worth more than you than that thing you thought you want? Um, even though it's good for us to see, wow, I'm wanting something that's not going to satisfy and that's not going to fulfill. 
Instead, the New Testament does a better job of showing us how is Jesus worth more to us than the thing we think we want, whether it's 10 sons or whether it's a job that allows us financial freedom. You know, Mm. fill in the blank for the thing you think you want. God is interested in showing us Jesus is worth more, but he's not going to do it in the way Elkanah does to Hannah. And I just think that's very moving. Uh, Before we do move on from this passage, I I would love to hear from you guys. This is one of those instances where it brings up a hard thing, uh, that of uh, a topic of barrenness or miscarriages. And Chris, having just preached on it, I imagine you got feedback even uh, from people who are either in the midst of barrenness and experiencing the the, the trials of not being able to conceive a, ch- a child when you want to, um, or miscarrying, uh, which can be one of the most silent forms of suffering uh, that people go through. And so mm. a- as you guys think of the just this specific pain point, h- how do you talk about it? How do you encourage somebody in the midst of it? Is there, yeah, let's, I just want to camp out here before we move on to Psalm 45. Yeah, I, I think, um, I feel like, so, so those of you who don't know me, um, kind of digging deep into the text this way, kind of surrounded by biblical theology, it's, it's new to me. Um, I really just came across it when I started going to Hiawatha, which I think was 2015, 16, something like that. Hmm. Um, a bazillion years a bazillion, ago. Just a Pre-COVID, lifetime. So. Uh, yeah, literally <laughs> a lifetime ago. A, a whole different, different multi- world. Multiverse. <laughs> different multiverse. I think it was that kind of different. We were so innocent back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but I, I think pre, pre kind of being exposed to the bigness and the oneness of the Bible, um, I would see passages like this and kind of zone in um, – on the specific problem it's talking about. So here it's talking about barrenness. Um, You know, elsewhere we have depression a lot with David. You know, we have blindness, we have sickness, Um, just so much suffering that's presented in the Bible. Um, And here I feel like it can be really dangerous territory because here you can look at Hannah and see all the right steps she took and then ta-da, her barrenness is, is miraculously cured. Um, and if we stop there and think that that's the, the salvation story that the Bible is offering us, um, it could lead to such despair. Um, and I think that one thing that I've learned is to kind of take a step back from the suffering that we find in the Bible, especially if it hits home in a very personal way, um, and see kind of how Jesus steps into that suffering. So it's less about Hannah doing the right things to find blessing from God, but more about how God has stepped into this Hannah-like suffering um, to bring blessings to us. Um, You see this a lot in the New Testament where Jesus kind of moves from like physical blindness and talks about how the point of that is so that we are eventually healed of our spiritual blindness through his suffering. Um, And I think the same thing is going on here with Hannah's barrenness. Um, it's trying to point us forward to, you know, a spiritual barrenness um, that that we are saved from through Christ's suffering, kind of how we were talking about how Hannah becomes this Christ type in this story. Um, 
And I think being able to kind of step back and get that bigness will then help us kind of sink back mm. into this um, and have it speak more to than just one issue. And, you know, someone who's dealing with addiction can can look at this and see the barrenness of his life and the choices he's made and still be spoken to it just as strongly as a woman who is dealing with um, barrenness of of her, you know, womb. Um and I think it just it's it allows us to um how do I say that? Just kind of step back into the bigness of the grace of God and how it meets us in this suffering, but also through this suffering. Um and and how you know, ultimately, you know, the, the problem that he's, he's leading us out of is separation from him. And so, and I think that's where that bad question of Elkanah's, um, but that good thing to think about is then, um, you know, am I not worth more than this, but because I love you so much. Um, and then you kind of have this, um, outpouring of gratefulness that can still exist in the midst of suffering and despair because Jesus has stepped into that with you and kind of moved out of there on your behalf. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's important to see in this story is that, you know, if hypothetically, if Hannah wasn't able to conceive, God still loves her. You know, like we, we can't tie God's love to physical blessing, you know, and I, I think that this, there are some pitfalls potentially in this passage. It's a tricky passage, actually. It's very nuanced, a lot of layers, a lot of questions that arise about why good happens even, you know, uh, answered prayer or unanswered prayer or suffering. I mean, all kinds of, it's very drenched in, in all of that. But I think one of the things we have to protect ourselves against as readers, as Christians or non-Christians reading this is that, you know, ultimately God is answering Hannah's prayer, you know, because he loves her. You know, it's, it's not because, like you were saying, Laura, because she's doing something or fasting from food or making promises or vows to him, which she is doing to God. So you have to kind of like really think about this in the grand scheme of the story, you know, is how do we know God loves us? It's because of Jesus's death. You know, it's because of what's ultimately being symbolized here through Hannah and through Elkanah and in these different capacities, like he's being whispered and it's his whisper that drives the story forward. Um, I will say this is jumping books here, I realize, but when I preached through Song of Solomon at my church years ago, I remember there being women who were, uh, and men too probably, but in this case, it was a couple of women who were in troubled marriages and who were saying, I really appreciate how you're not making this book a manual on how to have a healthy marriage or how to have a healthy sex life or something, which is what it gets reduced to a lot when you make it physical, because they were saying that's not good news for me. And that's th that that leaves me in this state of, well, then I need to do something to kind of copy what's being addressed here in this book. And if I'm honest, it's not going to work. I already know that's not going to happen. And I'm already being hurt by my husband. And we've had a hard marriage for a long time. And now there's obviously a place to speak to those things. I think that when you're preaching, preaching the word, though, when you're actually interpreting what the ultimate furthest reaching point of these stories are, you know, Song of Solomon is about Christ's love for the church. And they found a lot of respite, tons of respite in that, where they could have a messy marriage then, or they could be barren, or they could be struggling with miscarriage, or they could be, you know, in this case, um, a man who can't get pregnant, you know, or single. And you can still get the same message from this book, which is God brings life from the dead, which is, I think, 
really 30,000 foot view that, that it's really hard to interpret the Bible and not see that barrenness is really not ultimately about physical barrenness. It's about something more. And I think Song of Solomon, it's not really about physical marriage. It's about spiritual marriage. It's about something more going on here that can be good news for you no matter what you're experiencing in life because grace is for everybody. And it's not contingent on our our, our experiences, on our works, on our place in life, on our gender, on how many kids we have, success or failures we see in life, spiritually or otherwise. It's not contingent on anything except just the love of God shown for us through that self-imposed suffering that he takes on for us. I'm really helped by that, uh, by both uh, what both of you said, um, because I think this is an area that's really easy to approach. You know, here's God's word talking about somebody experiencing a real problem, that of barrenness. And so how do we help somebody who is experiencing this thing is a really quick place to go. And it's not a wrong place to go. I think it's a question of how. How do you offer words of comfort to somebody experiencing barrenness? Uh, And the answer, if I'm hearing you guys well, is that you first need to unspecify it or widen the context of how you're thinking about this problem because the scriptures are widening our horizons on the problem of barrenness and saying, before this is about you and your specific problem, it's telling a much greater theological story about a greater barrenness, uh, a spiritual barrenness to to say what you were saying, Laura. And blindness is a, is a useful analogy, like you're saying, because you imagine somebody who's, who is physically blind hearing about this one who cures physical blindness. It's like, does that mean a lot? To, yeah, it for sure means a lot to that person. But before we talk about him healing physical eyes, again, we need to widen or unspecify the problem to spiritual blindness because then all of us are placed under that umbrella. All of us are placed under, you know, like if we were to take First Samuel's uh, problem, unmet expectations of what we thought life was going to be. And why is that a thing? And how how ultimately is God going to rectify the wrongs that sin has caused in this world? Once we start to see that question get answered in light of the good news of Jesus, then we can get back to the specific or narrow issue at hand, whether it be barrenness or physical blindness or unmet expectations, because we have the gospel as the thing that's steering our understanding of what's happening here. And I think that makes all the difference as you want to bring 1 Samuel 1 to bear on your actual life, because it before, before it says something uh, about the way you can encourage somebody else, it's first allowing you to see, whoa, this is speaking to, to me and my heart and my propensity to sin and spiritual barrenness and try and manifest all the things that God has for me without him. And I need help. I need rescue. I need God to do what mm-hmm. I can. So mm-hmm. I think that's a good, uh, a helpful mm-hmm. guidepost for us as we navigate a passage like this. Uh, well, let's turn to Psalm 45. We have a, uh, a line here in the title that tells us it's by the sons of Korah, which means it's not by David. Uh, and it's a wedding song. And it begins uh, with verse one saying, my heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. You are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. And then we have, let's see, 15 or so more verses. And so it's interesting to first make note of the way that the sons of Korah are the ones writing this. In other words, again, it's not David. It actually seems to be written about David, this great king and this royal wedding that's going to take place or this imagery that begins with, again, pretty physical language of an actual royal wedding. Think like uh, a British royal wedding, like my 
extended family still gets super jazzed about that. And I'm just like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't know. It doesn't land with me. It lands with a lot of people though. So mm-hmm. it's a good, good illustration. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but then the Psalm takes us into some pretty cosmic language. It starts to sound a lot like second Samuel seven, which is when we're given a covenant from God to David about a throne that's going to last for eternity, right? So it's this physical thing, but then all of a sudden it's stretched into the etches of eternity, which is which is quite wild. Uh, first, uh, uh, the first chapter of Hebrews is going to read back Psalm forty-five and actually say, "Hey." This is about the person of Jesus and what he's done for you in wedding himself to you, never to leave you, never to forsake you, never to divorce you. And this is the best news possible. And so I think that's those are some helpful guideposts for us to start, that we have a, a psalm of, of a royal wedding, and the New Testament is going to read this, this psalm and go, this is unequivocally about Jesus. And so hear that, believe that, and let's zoom in on some of the, the finer points then about this king that's larger than life and the ways he beautifies his bride. What do you guys think? Yeah, I I really appreciate, I feel like Hebrews does this a lot where it kind of helps us like, oh, okay, this is how I'm supposed to be reading these other passages. And it, especially if you go back to Hebrews uh, 1, this comes kind of like in a slew of other quotes from other Psalms. So it's really helpful to kind of be like, okay, they're all talking about the same person. Um, but especially with this Psalm, I love the kind of the juxtaposition that we have of just the glory and majesty of the throne of who we know to be Jesus, um, mixed with some, uh, some actual, uh, pictures of death and tomb like, um, instances where if you maybe are not as familiar with like the narrative of Jesus's life and death, it may not kind of jump out at you. But when it's talking about his robes being fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia, those are all, um, oils that would have been anointed on Christ, um, upon his burial, his burial. Um, and so it kind of, it's almost like literally his robe reeks of death. Um, but I think that it allows us to make the connection that it's his death that leads to his majesty. Um, and I love that those oils are called the oil of gladness and it kind of just talks, you know, that the joy set before him, um, how he walked to the cross, I just, I love that connection. Um, and then we get this picture of, of the bride being led to him, the princess um, being led to him. And I love the more you kind of get um, acquainted with the biblical text, it's, I feel like the more times your your brain allows almost like a hyperlink to pop out at you. And I feel like anytime you have this, this picture of this bride being led to him, I can jump back to Song of Solomon like you were talking, Chris. It's one of my favorite books. Um, but because it it kind of unpacks this little blip of a verse here into just how much this love was and how great it was. Um, and I, I just I love just being able to kind of unpack just this little verse with an entire book about God's love for his bride. Um But yeah, I just, I think it's a very cool um, and necessary reminder to kind of link Jesus's death uh, with his majesty and with our marriage to him. Hmm. Yeah. One extra thing on that too, I I would add is the picture in verse 13 of the bride having a gown interwoven with gold. I really like that. I, um, and so sort of in, um, 
kind of a nice contrast with what you were saying, Laura. I mean, complimenting what you said, but in contrast with the imagery in verse eight, you have this robe drenched with death, you know, from this glorious, you know, kingly groom, um, which is in of itself is very, you know, very, very much whispers the gospel um, and, and points to not just the manger, but especially his, uh, the, the tomb, as, as you said, Laura. But then you have the bride wearing the gold. So it's kind of like, you know, the, the groom gets the myrrh and the bride gets the gold. The, the groom gets the death and, and, and the bride gets to be adorned with something that is, um, the, you could argue, is the, is the most beautiful of minerals. You know, it, it's, uh, it's gold and it's, the, it's this heightened kind of thing. Uh, love that. It's it's uh, substitution, really, in Psalm 45. And it, against the backdrop of the framework of everything you said, Davis, that this is about Jesus and the church ultimately, and it is, um, the Psalms give us this nice little pit stop poetically, you know, between uh, the marriages of the old the, the Old Testament narrative, you could say, you know, and the spiritual fulfillment in the new. These are prophetic songs and they and they point us ahead to the better, the better thing. So I, I love that. I, I love this idea of feeling like reading this and thinking, oh, we don't deserve that, but, but we were a part of this. This is our story. My um, wife and I are watching the, the crown on Netflix. Uh, she's more into it than I am, but I, it's actually really well done. It's interesting. And, um, and I think that like you're saying, Davis, people are drawn into that. Not everybody, um, but there, there is this kind of fascination with the royals, you know, uh, from a lot of people. And I think even if we don't, even if you don't have that, there is a fascination, I think, spiritually for the church, especially we're, we're fascinated with, with this because deep down, we kind of know that's our story. We're a part of this and uh, we're a royalty, not because we've earned it, but because it's been shared with us. We've been adopted into a family uh, in a way, you know, and maybe that's why there's a special fascination with Princess Diana or something, you know, where there's, there's just not, there's not a blood, there's not, not a blood relative royaltiness to her. She, you know, uh, in her princessness. Um, but there's this kind of, we're drawn to her in that regard. She kind of wears both hats, um, like Christ did. Christ was human, just like us. He was low and yet he was high. He was divine. I think all of that, all those stories, whether we see them in, you know, on Netflix or in the world or, but especially in Psalm 45, I think to think that we're, we share in royalty because we've been given to, and because someone else suffered to, to incur that suffering, to make it possible to reek of death for us. And that that person was God's son himself is just the best story ever. And, um, and it's hard to feel, you can feel like very, high of yourself in a, in a princess or prince term, but not in a, not in a moral sense. Like we, we are, we are like valued you could say maybe, or we're given to in a very high level, but you can't read this story and think that we've done something for that because there's nothing in this Psalm about she earned it, you know, or, or deserved it. It's just that she was loved and like Hannah, you know, was just loved and um, like the woman in Song of Solomon. So the story keeps being played on repeat for us, uh, for those types of grace-centered reasons. Mm. I, I love the um, paradigm here in this psalm where you have royalty mixed with intimacy, you know, because as, as I think of royalty and even you're talking about the crown, I think of just distance and like mm. adoration or just like, whoa, that thing is so much higher than me. And 
And for, especially if you're part of a kingdom, which for us Americans, we're like, I don't speak that language. I speak the kingdom of me uh, (laughs) and individualism. Um, But anybody who's, yeah, either visited that area or or studies history, you just kind of know like kingdoms, man, they they mark this sense of awe and adoration, especially the closer you get to the one at the top. Uh, And yet the psalm is just interwoven with this idea of intimacy and being seen by this king and being drawn forward or led by this king. And there's some helps there as we think about prayer. Um, You know, if you ever feel stuck in your prayer life, which is for many of us every day that ends in why, um, there is a invitation in the psalm, I think, to see Jesus as one who we get to go to in prayer uh, for many reasons. I mean, just very practically, we're, you know, talking about this in the year 2023, and there are two major wars that we know about that dominate our newsfeed. And one of them is a little bit easier to find kind of a good, bad side. And the other one, uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict is one that is so complex. And every day it just seems like I see another news source that's trying to dig their heels into the ground of, we're on the right side by choosing Israel. We're on the right side of choosing Palestine. Um, And it's kind of a, it is a, it's one, it's very complicated. And two, the clarity of justice is wanting, right? All of us feel the desire to choose a side, but no one really feels like they can stand on two feet in doing so. And here we have this psalm that's talking about a king whose scepter is one of unequivocal justice and whose justice will last forever and it will go unquestioned. There won't be a single person that when our eyes can fully see, right now we see dimly, but when our eyes fully see, there will be nobody who can look at Jesus and say, this was unjust, right? This is a king whose justice will last forever and who, according to verse four, rides forth victoriously on this truth, on this justice, And so in my own prayer life, this is just of help to me because I don't know how to read the news and go, this is the right side, this is the wrong side. I don't think we'll be able to answer that one uh, when it comes to this war. And yet Jesus will. Jesus will be able to, and the kingdom he's building is one that's marked by pure justice. Um, And it also makes me think of uh, the old hymn about let us wonder grace and justice. Hmm. let it join and point to mercy store when through grace in Christ, our trust is justice smiles and asks no more. So these themes of justice and grace mixing together and ultimately grace swallowing up uh, with a final word is, is good news. Well, let's briefly turn to uh, our march through Ephesians one. Let me just read verses 11 to 14. And before I do, I I want you to just pay attention to the ways the Christian life is lived in the past. Uh, There's so much help in seeing that, that the things that have come and have gone are your navigation system. The things that have happened by God are what give us sure footing here and now. It says this, beginning in verse 11, In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What do you guys want to say about Ephesians 1, 11 to 14? Well, I'll maybe, yeah, start with a couple of words on the word plan. That's a a word um, 
that just kind of even just with fresh eyes seeing this now kind of jumps off the page to me. Um, but that idea of God being a planner is not something I, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I don't instinctually think of him as, you know, a planner with, uh, you know, almost like blueprints out in front of him or something. Uh, but it's kind of a cool image. Uh, it's uh, linked up with predestining, I think, and God being that kind of cosmic, big picture, um, eternal planner. Like he's intentional. He's not just this big head in the sky that's just watching and letting things play out, you know, like he wound up a clock and just kind of let it go. Uh, or, you know, a toy chick or something that's bouncing around. Like he, he's, he's planning, he's orchestrating things. Um, and that, you know, it's one of those things, like when you think about theology, that's good news, but it's helpful in theology to think about what that in turn doesn't mean, you know, or kind of by extension means. And and for me, I think that, well, that means that I am not left to my own devices. It means that the ultimate kind of point of my salvation is not to be a planner. And I think a lot of Christians think about that in terms of their sanctification. You know, God saved them, but now this whole Christian life is about you doing the hard work of planning in the right way or enough to kind of please God or to make sure that you stay on the right path. And those kind of messaging, that kind of messaging can be very laborious and kind of a heavy yoke, I think, and really not what scriptures, I think, meaning to teach, especially if God is planning, not just our salvation, but our whole life. Um, you know, and this is written to Christians, right? They needed to hear this just as much as a non-Christian maybe conceptually needed to come to understand this for the first time as they were becoming a Christian. This is for a church, I think, to remember that God is planning their life and it's not up to them to have to plan everything perfectly um, and, and to work out their salvation perfectly, you know? Um, even in light of Paul's words in Philippians 2, yeah, we work out our salvation, but that's not you know, we, we do it because God is at work within us, as it says, and and we do it with relief. We do it with open hands. We do it knowing that God is planning. Or maybe to apply that those words from First John four, um, that you know we plan because God is first planned. You know, like we love because He first loved us. Like we we plan, we make plans, and we do things because He's first planned and is planning our salvation and orchestrating it down to the perfect detail. That's a huge relief for people who are anxious, you know, and troubled and heavy laden and just honestly sinful, you know, like all of us um, and who are stubbornly faithless. I I think that's hugely um, important to know. And then maybe adding on the word inheritance, you know, it, it kind of makes you think of God being an estate planner, but that inheritance is just rich too, because, you know, people that are beneficiaries of an inheritance don't work for it. And so I think Paul is choosing his words carefully here. And inheritance was kind of synonymous with the land in the Old Testament as well. It was a place of inheritance and rest there too. So it helps us interpret what's going on there is that God is a giver of salvation. We don't work for it. Again, the message of saved by grace, not by works is woven like the gold in the, in the bride's dress in Psalm 45. The, the gold of that message is woven in throughout all the story um, and we're meant to see it. And here it's just a seemingly passing word, but, you know, Paul just really wants the church to remember that as Christians, you're not staying saved by your hard work. It's everything's an inheritance, the, the end goal of where you're headed, but every day is, is a gift and an inheritance given to you. He's constantly, constantly planning and orchestrating and estate planning and, you know, working out everything for the good of, of those who are in him, as it says elsewhere. And so that, that's hugely, for me, a, a huge relief um, as one who struggles often to stumble through this life, you know, uh, as a Christian. And um, 
but yeah, but this, this gives us a better word, I think. Ooh, Chris, you struggle. Ooh. Ooh. I definitely, mm. Mm. I definitely second, don't ever struggle. Second thoughts about <laughs> this whole podcast now. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. Appreciate You're that. Pat on the back. And to wrap yeah. it up. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, no, and I think it really helps um, to pay attention to the verbs that are being used in passages like these. And this is definitely a reminder to myself just as much as anybody, um, because often um, the action is happening to us, not by us. And the same can be said about this passage. Just like you were saying, you know, God is the planner in this instance and not us. Well, I would say in every instance. And you can see that in the verbs that are being used. Um, what? Uh, translation are you guys using? Just a question. I go NIV. NIV. Ah, that's why. Because oftentimes I'm like, that's not the word that's being used because I'm in the ESV. So mine actually yes. does say predestination, <laughs> uh, that we are predestined. Um, yeah. But even just like obtaining an inheritance, being sealed with the Holy Spirit, these are things that are happening to us, not by us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that... Um, that hand in, hand in hand with what he's actually on repeat right now, that this is for uh, the praise of his glory, of God's glory and not our glory. Um, it's a good reminder that our good belief on those good belief days is not um, an attribute to us. It's not a reflection of our glory, but it's a reflection of God's glory um, because he ultimately is the, the lead planner in our lives and in our salvation. Um and I, yeah, I think this can be kind of a dual-sided thought uh, as you're reading through this, because I feel like on my good days, uh, when I feel like I'm being a really good team player on Team Jesus and I'm like bringing my A game, uh, this can kind of help me come down a notch. <laughs> um, <laughs> just a reminder that this isn't about me um, and it's not being done by me um, ultimately, but it's also can be such a balm on the days that we just aren't bringing it. And we are just kind of tripping over ourselves and tripping over, um, our life really, and just really dropping the ball. This can be such a balm to be reminded of how out of our hands this is and how much, um, it's God bringing this to the table and not us. And so I feel like it kind of helps both ways to kind of meet us in the middle where Jesus is. Well, with that, let's look at our but what about section for today. And we're going to be, again, hanging out in Luke 17. And if you're newer to the podcast, this is the the time in the episode where we look at a trickier part of Scripture that seems to kind of fly in the face of what we're trying to do here. And again, what we're trying to do here is just say, I think it's... I think Luke 24 is true, and I think Psalm 45, 1 is true, that your heart was meant to be stirred by a noble theme as you see Jesus as he's revealed himself to be, uh, and that the scriptures are way more interested in showing him off than they are showing you a manual of how to live. Mm-hmm. And in uh, verses 11 to se- eleven and 19 in Luke 17, we find a story where Jesus comes across 10 lepers while he's traveling to Jerusalem. And by the way, he's traveling to Jerusalem to go and die for the sins of the world. And while he's on his way there, he comes across these 10 people who are shouting out to him, Jesus, master, have pity on us. And we're told that when he sees them, he simply says, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, the 10 lepers are cleansed. One of them, though, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. 
he threw himself at Jesus's feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked this man, we're not all 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, this is about what about passage for us, because if you've heard this message taught or have just read it on your own, there is a uh, knee-jerk reaction that really wants to make this about growing in gratitude. Uh, often this is taught as a, hey, if you're feeling down and out, what you really need to grow in is your understanding of, of thankfulness and your practice of thankfulness. So we're going to have a little powwow on becoming more grateful. And if that's the way that this is taught, then I think uh, we're going to miss the bag on what this passage is ultimately trying to get at. And it's easier uh, to see that when we slow down and go, well, what, what's actually happening here? And so I, I'm curious, how, how do you guys mm-hmm. interpret Luke 17, 11 and 19? Well, I think one thing that helps a little bit with some of that, um, some of those questions and maybe tension, Davis, is just the idea that there's a Samaritan there's a Samaritan in play, which is, you know, um, if you've read the Gospels, that's usually kind of a, whoa, this shouldn't be, or, or the Samaritans are brought in as kind of a, a poke in the side of the, you know, kind of straightforward Jewish religious way of thinking, because Samaritans were hated, they were half-bloods, a little bit of Jewish blood, but mostly descendants of the northern kingdom that were assimilated uh, by the Assyrians hundreds of years prior, and there was, there was bad blood. Um, and so for me, I think of like places like John four, where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well and, and just even talks about how they had different places of worship. Like they, they, they're different mountains, you know, that they kind of went to. And so this is a person that had, would have had like very, very little familiarity with Jewish law and with proximity to the temple mount and things. And so just seeing that this is the person that comes back, I think is one of those, you know, surprises. So again, far from being just this lesson about thankfulness, like you're saying, Davis, I think that the inclusion of a Samaritan brings that grace surprise. It brings, this happened out of left field. This shouldn't, of all the 10, this should be the one that that didn't do this, but it was flipped and it goes against the grain. And when things go against the grain, they go against human wisdom. They confound a human rational way of thinking, which is more of an if-then way of thinking. You know, if I do this, then I get this. Or if I am this, then I will be blessed. Or, But this is like a surprise. And I think when there are surprises, you, you see that element of, oh, God is doing something here that is not in accordance with the person's inherent ability, um, but the... Um, but just because of God working, you know, and, and just because of his love and just because of giving grace to the undeserving. And, um, and we all need to hear this on some level, you know, cause we're all in one sense, we're all of, we're all the nine too. We're all the people that, you know, don't appreciate grace and don't appreciate what's been done. And so in one sense, seeing ourselves in the nine can be humbling to see that, oh, that's right. There's, you know, th- th- this is given, not earned. This is something that comes to us and is found, we're found by one who's pursuing rather than the other way around. So I think that inclusion of Samaria, I think the Samaritan, I think helps us to see that, that grace surprise. Yeah. And we're not against gratitude. I'm team gratitude. I love that. That's, same, that's great. Same. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. um, I think there's, there's help though in admitting how ungrateful we often are and that the yeah. cure to that is not just 10 steps to more gratitude or by holding forth an example of somebody who's more grateful than you and saying, be like him. Mm-hmm. Instead, I think this passage is revealing a much greater mystery that's been revealed 
in Christ, that Christ is the one who's speaking to these 10 and they are being healed by him. And one is responding in the way that we just read about in Ephesians. Isn't that fascinating? Like we just read, we too are putting our hope in Christ and believing him. And because of that, we are becoming the praise of his glory. And here we have a story from the mouth of Jesus saying, let me tell you about a story of one who comes and praises my glory because Mm -hmm. he believed my word. And so a different way to say all of this is that the way to grow in gratitude is not first come up with some steps to be more grateful, but under understand who is Jesus and how does he work? What's he saying to you right now? And your understanding as it grows, which Paul's going to pray about the next time we gather and read Ephesians, he's going to pray that we would understand and know God more, the riches that belong to him and the power that is made perfect and available to us in the person and work of Christ. Know that, understand that. And gratitude, of course, will come. Gratitude isn't the goal, though Jesus is the goal and gratitude will always follow him wherever he is. For sure. And I I think it's helpful to even just um, having read Hannah's story, kind of the same thing where we kind of can pull back and um, see this light in the light of not just Jesus healing somebody's physical sickness, but maybe he's kind of cluing in, uh, cluing us into something bigger. And I think even just in verse 14, when it says that they were cleansed, Um, after he told them to go to the priest, I find it so interesting that he says that they were cleansed and not healed. I think that's kind of letting us know like something else is happening here. Um, And I think it's really important that the one who came back, he never even made it to the temple, which is where I'm assuming they were going in order to talk to the priest, which is something that you would have found in Leviticus, like the ritual of being cleansed after being sick with leprosy. Um, But this guy never even made it there. You know, they were healed before they made it there. And then this guy did an about face and came straight back to Jesus, who was the one who healed him. Um, and I love right at the end when when Jesus says, after he this guy comes back, he says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I have a footnote again that says it says that he said your faith has saved you. Um, and so I think it's just shooting us forward that it's not the physical sickness that the, was this guy's biggest problem. It was his spiritual leprosy, his spiritual, uh, you know, sickness that was driving him away from everything good and holy. And it wasn't the law. It wasn't the temple. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the old covenant that saved him. It was Jesus. And I think this is what the whole Bible shouts, that Jesus is bringing something new. And I think this story in Luke, along with so many other stories, is just one of those little light bulb moments where Jesus is saying, something is coming. I am here. Everything is about to change. Thank you for joining us. You can find us online at redtreegrace.com. Audio production for the podcast is provided by Dan Zeller and website support by Nolan Bauer. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, do consider dropping us a rating wherever you get your podcast to join us in giving away the always better news of God's grace. Thanks again for being with us. On Christ the Oh